Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hey, Sarah. Hello, hello, Rebecca. How are you? I am in the midst of ghosts. So many ghosts. (laughs) So little time. It's a whole season. It is. It is. What what are we doing for fun in the meantime, though? Ghosts. Oh, that's all inclusive? <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, because what I was thinking would be super fun is if somebody came up with the idea of a movie and then you talked over it and you had all these jokes and, and it took a while to get through the actual movie. And that could maybe be a distraction for you on your off time. This is not an original idea, Rebecca. You don't think so? No. Mary Jo Peel is on our podcast today, and she worked on a show that that is basically the concept of. I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Mystery Science Theater. I was trying to figure out how to encompass the awesomeness of what exactly that is for somebody that has never come across it. And, like uh, me? <laughs> yeah. Like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so on Internet Movie Database, somebody succinctly put it together for me. They said, when zany mad scientist Dr. Clayton Forrester and his loopy assistant Frank get bored with their work at the Deep 13 Research Center, they kidnap Joel the janitor and shoot him into orbit on the satellite of love. While in space, Joel builds wacky robot sidekicks Uh, to help him withstand an onslaught of B-movies that the mad scientists force him to watch. (laughs) It's so you are a witness to him watching these really bad movies with his robots and, you know, commenting along the way. This would totally work with ghost tour season. (laughs) It's so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and truly... I sat down with Mary Jo after her and Daryl had their conversation and did the oral history. And she is a riot to talk to. She's got the best laugh. She's so much fun. Uh, You might be wondering, why in the world are we sitting down with this woman uh, for the Anoka County Historical Society? But she grew up in Circle Pines. Sarah, where is Circle Pines in Anoka County? Yeah, it took up some land from Blaine Township and Centerville Township. So it's kind of right on the border. And it started as a cooperative community in 1950, where businesses and city services were owned and run collectively by community members. So everybody had a job in town and everybody contributed to the community. Yes, it's a really interesting history. And uh, Mary Jo Peel grew up there, not in the cooperative community part, but um, yeah. And she melded some of that into her work at Mystery Science Theater. Yeah, her and Daryl talk about it in the interview. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, Daryl Lawrence is uh, going to lead the interview on this one. And he is a member of our board of directors. Shall we? We shall. Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. 
Thank you so much for being a listener to History 21, the podcast. As we wrap up our second year of producing the show, we'd like to remind you this programming content is provided free through the generous support of our donors. In order for us to keep up the quality content you've come to love, please consider making a year-end gift to the Anoka County Historical Society. Your donation will ensure future generations have access to the stories of our county and the ability to understand the world they live in. Remember, the present is the past of the future. Um, This is Daryl Lawrence, Secretary of the Board of Directors, conducting an oral history interview. Uh, So why don't you introduce yourself? I am Mary Jo Peel. Mary Jo, we are going to run through this whole line of questioning. Um, Some of it is specific to our story gathering form, and then there are things specific to you and your career as well. Talk as much or as little as you wish, and we will just kick it off if you're ready. Okay. First off, tell us about when you were born, where you were born, who your parents are, all that good stuff. I was born in 1960 in a a um, hospital in St. Paul, St. Joseph's Hospital in St. Paul, but my parents were living in Circle Pines at the time, and my father was uh, working as an accountant for, I think, a carpeting and linoleum manufacturer in Minneapolis, and my mother at that point was home with three little kids, soon to be five little kids. What are some stories about what your dad's work that you remember? Anything coming to mind as you're growing up? He usually seemed to be working two jobs at a time. He he had a day job uh, for various um, companies, but he was also an entrepreneur. Like he took a um, an accounting class through uh, snail mail, a correspondence class, mm-hmm. and he started doing people's income taxes uh, at our house. So we always had a side gig, what the kids call side gigs now. So then he, he, um, he started, he opened his own accounting practice in Circle Pines, uh, maybe the late seventies, early eighties. And he was also mayor of Circle Pines in 1962 to I think 1964. And he was the youngest mayor at that point that Circle Pines had ever had. Very cool. So you spent your whole childhood in Circle Pines in that area. Yes, yes. All right. Let's talk about grandparents. Uh, we saw them, I think, on a regular basis. But each each set of grandparents had a whole slew of grandchildren. Sure. Yeah, I think that was fairly typical. My own parents, my dad was one of six and my mom was one of eight. So that's a lot of grandkids to keep track of after a while. (laughs) Totally. And develop relationships with. Yeah. So what other extended family members may you have known better while you were growing up? Aunts, uncles, cousins? I was really close to my aunts, Karen and my, uh, Karen and Marlene. Uh, they were my mom's sisters, and I miss them terribly. I was very close to them. They were big influences in my life. What made them so important to you? My Aunt Karen 
was really smart and really insightful about people. She was the kind of aunt where you could talk about things that you might not be able to talk with your mother about. She was also the first person, I was very shy as uh, a young girl, and she was the first person to tell me something that never occurred to me. She said, you should always wear pink. Blondes look great in pink. And I just remember having, having this realization that um, someone saw me in a different way than I saw myself. Like I should just blend into the woodwork and not uh, create a high profile for myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was just always, she was the first person to call me beautiful, I think, or very, very pretty or striking. And we read a lot. She and I both read a lot. So did my mother, but we talked about books and movies a lot. She gave me so many, what I feel like at the time were ahead of her time, movie recommendations. Like I remember her recommending, excuse me, eating Raul to me. And it's a really a wild movie. And when I watched it, I was blown away because it is really wild. And I just loved her sensibility. It sounds like she was so affirming to you and really boosted you and your confidence and instilled that, that sense of belonging almost that, yeah, like own it. You look good in pink and things like that. Yes. I think affirming is a really, a really good word. And again, just, just, having someone you love and respect see you in a different way and connecting with, with mm -hmm. how she sees you gives you a different sense of yourself. And that was hugely meaningful to me. And I'm jumping ahead because it's in this line of questioning, but we're going ahead in the future. When you got into the entertainment business, did having strong female role models help you navigate the politics or the business itself? Well, I, that is a great question. I think it must have in ways that maybe I haven't considered before because it wasn't just um, my mom who started her own business and was also an entrepreneur after uh, us kids sort of grew older. It was my aunt Marlene. It was my Aunt Karen, who had really uh, strong personalities. And it wasn't just that. It was the idea that a lot of my role models were women comedians. Like I think of watching the Carol Burnett show and being blown away that this woman had her own variety show. And uh, back in the olden days, all these women comedians that you would see uh, on the Mike Douglas show or the Merv Griffin show, like Tony Fields and um, Joan Rivers. So I think that does seep into your bones on some level. You see it modeled in a way and you discover who you are within that dimension, having had people like my my aunts and my mom in your life and my older sisters, my older sisters, um, 
continue to be a, a huge influence on me. Yeah, I can imagine having strong female role models really set you up, especially in comedy, to go in there and feel confident in your abilities and know that, hey, I'm, I'm worth it. Here we go. I'm not sure I ever felt confident. I've only started feeling confident maybe the past 10 years. But on some level, I must have felt there was a path to it, through sure. it. So let's go back to childhood and talk about some of your memories. So what's the first clear memory you have as a child? It was... We lived in a little house on Baldwin Drive in Circle Pines. It was all these, um, they used to call them cracker box houses. I, I'm not sure if that's accurate, but they were all uniform and uh, small, maybe 900 square feet. And we moved out of that house and we moved into a slightly bigger house a few miles away. And I remember um, sitting on a bench in the kitchen in the new house and watching people move boxes in, which is a theme I have carried on throughout my life. <laughs> I hate moving. Same. It's never a fun task. So <laughs> how old were you? I was About, three. What are some other things that you remember from childhood? Maybe humorous or memorable incidents that happened to you? I remember I... We lived, the place we moved to was more of a, a, a new housing development. So it was still pretty rustic and rural. There was a lot of wooded land behind us and it was great for exploring. Uh, so I remember playing in the woods a lot. I remember putting on plays with uh, the neighborhood kids in, in the woods. Um, the neighbors across the street had a uh, tree house, and I remember playing in the tree house a lot. Uh, I remember I was a big reader. I read a lot. So I remember, I remember the bookmobile coming down the street and getting books. Our house was with five kids. It was pretty chaotic. There was a lot <laughs> of activity, shall yeah. we say. We, uh, we had dogs, uh, sequential, not, not more than one at the same time. And I was and am a huge animal lover. So I remember playing with the dog. And in those days, I never thought I'd be saying those words in those days. <laughs> but you did. You had free run of the, the neighborhood. What were some books that you really enjoyed reading as a kid? What stand out to you as your favorites? Uh, I don't know if it was my favorite, but it changed my reading life. I absolutely loved it. My mom gave me a copy of Les Miserables, and I was in fourth grade, and she was an avid reader. So she handed me this book, and it was unabridged, and it was huge. And, and the language is archaic. Mm -hmm. And I remember not being able to put it down. So that, that is formative. It was definitely a favorite at the time. It was formative. I don't know if I could tackle it again now at this age. Um, uh, I remember reading uh, books from my sister's uh, book piles, like Love Story, which I was way too young to read, my yeah. mom said. <laughs> and um, 
Mrs. Mike and Caddy Woodlawn and all the little house on the prairie. And Harriet the Spy was also very formative for me. Very fun. So you had quite the breadth of reading at your disposal. I mean, that, that, that bookshelf in your mind has a lot of different genres in it and a lot of different experiences within those books. Yeah, I, I thank my mother for that. She, she never restricted what we could read. Uh, she was always encouraging us to, to read. Yeah. So what schools did you attend? I went to, mm -mm, I can't remember where I went to kindergarten, maybe Lovell kindergarten. Okay. And then I went to St. Joseph's Catholic church for one through five, the Catholic school. Mm -hmm. I think now it's um, church of the lakes. It was St. Joseph's at the time. Uh, it was our parish. Then then sixth grade was Golden Lake Elementary in Circle Pines. And then it was Centennial Junior High and Senior High. All right. So Mary Jo was done with high school. What came afterwards? I went to college. I went to the College of St. Catherine and St. Paul because I thought I wanted to be a nurse. Okay. And they have an outstanding nurse, nursing program. When did that change? like six months into like first first semester um I realized in a rare moment of self-realization I realized that um when I thought of being a nurse what I was actually thinking about was tv shows like Marcus Welby like yes drama around it and being able to wear a crisp white uniform but since I was not connecting very much with biology or any of the sciences, I realized it was probably a bad fit. And I don't know how it happened, but I started writing more. And then the adjacent college, the College of St. Thomas had journalism classes. So I started taking journalism classes, but I'll be honest, I, I also thought that was, oh, I'm gonna be Woodward and Bernstein. You know, it turns out I'm too lazy for that, but it did, there were, that was a connection for me. What did you eventually major in? Journalism and communications with a minor in theater. So after college, where do you go next? After college, I started job hunting feverishly. And this would have been 82, 83. And if memory serves, it was a tough job market and or there was a recession. So I had a really hard time finding a job. And my first job out of college was at KTEL International. And they were the company that did, they did all the um, novelty products, gadget stuff, but the, uh, the location I was working at, they did all these album compilations. So I worked in the traffic department, which meant you sent out all the, the commercial reels manually, mm -hmm. like in the old days on a, on a tape. And um, I thought I was in the music business, even though it was just basically clerical, but it was a job. So I was, I was thrilled. I remember 
those commercials. I mean, anyone growing up prior to the early 2000s was subject to radio or TV ads for compilations. And um, they would sometimes just have the oddest names. Uh, <laughs> totally, yes. Like Zen music. And you're like, what? what does that mean? Okay, I guess it's the 13 tracks on this album. That's what <laughs> Zen means. Okay. Yes. Somebody forwarded me some link that was an advertisement for KTEL's um, uh, punk rock collection. And the music was anything but punk. It was amazing. <laughs> like how they got away with that or who they thought they were appealing to. Like it was it was stunning. It was like Lionel Richie stuff. With oh, all wow. respect. It was just like, who didn't, who, okay, who packaged this? Who didn't quite connect the dots? <laughs> who will buy this? Maybe middle America. <laughs> yeah. Thinking yeah. it's punk. Yes. All right. So continue on your career journey. So you were making it big in the record industry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, making quite a name for myself. And then I I got laid off from KTEL, which uh, was my first experience, one of many, it turns out, of uh, being disengaged from a job against my will. <laughs> and a friend of mine that I had met at the record company at KTEL took me to an open stage and I memorized like three minutes of material and it kind of worked. And this was the early to mid 1980s. So more the mid eighties. And there was this huge comedy boom in the Twin Cities and throughout the country. And I started getting work right away. And it just, um, it just happened to overlap with being fired from the arts organization. So I was doing comedy, the, these weird gigs driving to, I don't know, Rogers, Minnesota for $20. And I managed to piece together a living. And um, I started temping during the day, which was perfect for me yeah. because you weren't it didn't depend on you navigating office politics. You just showed up and st stuffed envelopes and, and doing stand-up comedy and improv at night. Yeah. Did I go too far afield, Daryl? No, absolutely not. This is your okay. journey. So okay. um, you're totally right about the comedy boom. And I feel that so many stars aligned in the Twin Cities area during that time for comedy. Just there was something in the water and all of a sudden it was a scene it wasn't just one or two it was an entire comedy scene this is what it was like i would go out on the road and do these small towns and i would be introduced like this our next comedian is a female comedian because you had to prep the audience mm. that the freak show was coming mm. so that's the kind of environment you were working in but you also had all these women pals, colleagues who were navigating the same thing. Where did you draw your material from? In those days, it was pretty surreal. Uh, I just made up stuff. Uh, a lot of the material was about this um, made up 
husband who is a real loser. Um, would you believe I can barely remember anything from my own <laughs> act? But it, it was very made up. It wasn't drawn from any real life or storytelling ideas. Okay. So what, how long did you work the comedy circuit? I, this would have been like 85, 86. Okay. So seven to eight years um, dedicated, devoted, period of time. Tell us about how you got started with Mystery Science Theater. What was that onboarding experience like? They had just gotten picked up by um, the HaHa channel, cable channel. Cable was booming. They needed, they needed programming. Uh, it was Mystery Science Theater had been produced locally, got picked up by a national cable company and they were hiring more writers. Well, I knew these guys from doing stand-up, but I was so broke in those days, I didn't have a TV. So I had no idea what the show they were all working on was. So one day Bridget and I were friends. And of course, in my memory, this is how it went down, but it's a little over, overly dramatic. <laughs> one day, Bridget called me and I picked up the phone in my efficiency apartment. And she said, you didn't hear it from me, but Mystery Science Theater is looking for another writer. And in my imagination, she was, you know, in a parking ramp somewhere in the dark <laughs> wearing an overcoat. And I mustered up all my courage, like I kind of panicked, which is my reaction to everything. And I mustered up all my courage and I called Mike Nelson, who was the head writer. And I said, and again, this is how it felt like to me. Hi, I understand you're looking for another writer. I would be really interested, click. I mean, I'm sure it was a little more artful than that. But I let him know and they called me in for um, a two week audition where I wrote on two movies. And then at the end of those two weeks, this trial period, no one said anything. And you know, when you've been laid off or fired so many times, you just kind of like, well, here's, here's another one. And so I decided to be mature about it. And I went to all the, um, all the shareholders who are actors and um, uh, you know, the heads of the company. And I said, thank you so much for this opportunity. I think they had forgotten I was there. I, I really do, I'm not trying to be funny. And so they instantly called a meeting and asked if I would stay another two weeks. And I was like, thank you. So I did. and then I really do think they just sort of assumed I was there to stay, but I always wanted closure. I wanted to know what the long and the short of it was. Yeah. You were looking for that affirmation to go back to a part of the earlier conversation. You want someone to affirm, yeah, you're here. Like keep doing what you're doing. Yes. This is happening. It is official. Like yeah. I needed that. Yeah. It, was it based here in the Twin Cities? Is that where everything was written and produced? Yes, Mystery Science Theater was written and produced here in the Twin Cities, homegrown show. And 
when I showed up for that first day and we were in this writing room with couches and comfortable chairs and a big screen TV. And our job was watching the television show and cracking jokes about what was happening. I mean, these old movies. I, I couldn't believe it. Like who, what kind of a job is this that is <laughs> uniquely suited to my skill set? Watching, watching a big screen TV. It was just kind of mind blowing. It was such a unique television show. And to be, get to be a part of it using a skill set I didn't really know I, I had mm -hmm. was pretty amazing. And I look back at that time, I was there for seven years, I think, until it ended. And I remember never taking that job for granted. I remember always walking in the door and thinking, this is amazing. And I was really lucky because I really adored my coworkers. And we got to laugh really hard every day. So you transitioned from just writing to also being on screen. Yes. How were your days? I mean, you're in production, so you obviously you can write ahead of time, but then you have to, you know, get ready and go on screen. Talk about what the difference between those roles. I think I think I'd gotten so used to being a writer, which which is is very comfortable. It has its parameters that when I got to, when I was asked to do a role, I, I panicked to a certain degree. It was a whole, it was out of my comfort zone. We were very in-house. We were always uh, dragooning whoever to play these different roles. We never auditioned. We'd get the prop master to do a role. We would get the, um, production assistant to do a role. It was just very, um, very insular and skin of the teeth. You do this, you do this, which is one of the things I loved about it. So when I forget what the first role I did was, it might've been playing the wacky neighbor for the evil nemesis, nemesis. And I was doing it with Bridget. We were the wacky neighbors. So there was some comfort level in doing it with somebody I knew and trusted. Um, but, but you don't want to ruin a take. So you're kind of sweating it out. You, we, you know, there are other things at stake, like ruining a take, screwing other people up if you um, drop a line. So uh, it, I really sweated it out. It was very nerve wracking for me. As a writer, you're probably given a certain level of anonymity. People see your name in the credits and they love what you're contributing, but they don't necessarily know what you look like. How did it change? How did fan interactions change once you were on screen consistently? This would have been the ascendancy of the internet. So I'm doing these goofy, um, ancillary roles on the TV show. And then when the main nemesis, Trace Bilyeu and Frank Conniff 
decided to leave the show, I stepped in as the, the nemesis, the evil mad scientist. It was really shocking to me that the fan base was so devoted that there was a lot of, it was very controversial. And I was kind of operating in this little um, hive, like I was just doing my job. Like it never, it never occurred to me mm-hmm. that it was hitting the, the airwaves. Now, remember, I didn't have a TV, so I was really disconnected. It never occurred to me that, um, that people were actually watching the show. It never occurred to me that people would be so invested in it. And I remember that being a really painful time because people were very vocal about losing their beloved trace and understood. I understand. I love him. He was so funny, but also a lot of comments about a woman taking the role and my personal appearance. Mm -hmm. So that was really disheartening and jarring. And it really, it was, I think it was was really a you know pivotal pivotal moment for me because after a while I realized oh I am letting a bunch of strangers take away my joy and my opportunity so I think it was really formative in terms of just owning what I did and I do and not everyone's going to like it and I don't have to please everyone. So that was really huge in, in that mystery science theater career. Yeah, that's a that's a powerful lesson to learn and to stick with. Talk to me about the production schedule for any episode where you're working on it, perhaps during your on-screen time. So what did that look like? We would... Uh, it was a nine day cycle. It it originally was a seven day cycle. Then it was a nine day cycle to give us some breathing room. The first day we would write the movie, we would sit down and watch the movie and there would be a, um, we would take turns transcribing the jokes, which is a very harried position because people are just throwing stuff out there and you're trying to transcribe everything. We writers all took turns at that task. We would take the whole day to get through the movie. The second day, we would write the the host segments, which were the interstitials between the movie segments. And sometimes they were thematic, sometimes they were random. So we would brainstorm and winnow those down to things that we hoped were cohesive and made sense, although you see some of them now and they are so random, they're so hilarious. The third day we would do a second pass at the movie. Um, Each movie script had at least 900 jokes in it. And I can't imagine what the ratio was for the original draft, like how many things were thrown out there. Okay, the fourth and fifth day, I and some of the other writers would do line assign where we would take a movie segment and a script segment and figure out what joke was the best one at the right time slot. Cause we rarely, we tried to avoid talking over dialogue 
and then you would assign it to an actor. You would put the actor's name next to it. Six and seven, we would shoot the movie. We would shoot the movie, the actors doing the lines at the movie. And then, then we would do the, um, the other host segments, which would have been on an actual set, not in front of the movie, all mm -hmm. the character things. And I think that would have been seven and eight. And then on the ninth day, we would review the taped movie and note where corrections had to be made if, if an actor flubbed a line. All right. So fairly extensive. And when you're talking about TV seasons back then, there were a lot of episodes to do. This was, it is not a, a Netflix series that has eight episodes per season. This is a, a full 20 plus episode commitment each year. Yeah, 24, 24 episodes a year. And we, um, every couple of months we would get, every six weeks we would get a week off. It was such a great shoot. It was such a great schedule. And we, we worked nine to five. It wasn't like an LA or New York writing room where you stayed for 12 hours during the day. It was, it was really managed well. Sure. So some of the things you wrote, they reference Circle Pines. Talk to me about developing that humor based around somewhere where you grew up. And what made you think, ha, huh, this would be a good running gag for only people in the know and maybe only people in Anoka County? Well, I think that everyone in the writing room was always drawing on their personal experiences or references. So I think, I think that's what gave me sort of the impetus or courage to reference Circle Pines. I threw Circle Pines in there the first time. I can't remember exactly what the reference was, but I think Circle Pines is a great reference for um, a small town, coom, suburban bedroom community. I think it's just, uh, you know, it's a good stand-in for that idea. Secondly, the name Circle Pines is just funny. Like it catches <laughs> people's ears. And I think, I, I, I have no doubt that I initially threw it out there because I wanted to keep my footing in the writing room and always be able to contribute something because I did not want to lose that job. And I remember it getting uh, a really great response when I first just, oh, Circle Pines at, in, at night. You know, people just really um, in the writing room really, uh, it really hooked them. They, they loved it. And then it became a running gag. Yeah. And it, I'm sure that's what Circle Pines is known for to many, many fans. And that's oh, it. I guess. Seriously. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> I never thought. It's the most exposure Circle Pines has ever gotten on a national scale. I guess so, Daryl. I never even, I never even thought of that. Maybe we, I should start offering like bus tours of the Ooh, area. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Get that class C license. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> and over here we have Centennial Senior High. <laughs> <laughs> so where does life find you now? What are you up to? What's the family situation like? 
So talk us through everything. Catch us up. Like, who's Mary Jo now? (laughs) (laughs) She's many colored rainbow. Um, I I am living in um, New Brighton. I spent about eight years in Austin, Texas with my husband. We moved back to the Twin Cities uh, uh, in 2014. And I am now in New Brighton and I am working on Rift Tracks, which is sort of a mystery science theater offshoot and very much in keeping with current tech technology. It's a streaming and um, a DVD commentary uh, process. And I have a little show on Twitch called the Mary Jo Peel Show interestingly enough. <laughs> and I just doing a lot of freelance writing. I have a um, project that I'm working on about my dad, a little mini documentary about my dad. And I just released a book called Dumb, 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 My Mother's Book Reviews, which uh, my mother was an avid reader. And she was a huge devotee of the library system and specifically Anoka County libraries. It's been so fascinating and interesting to talk to some of the librarians at the the branches to, to know what that process is. And I imagine my mother being in um, her branch was the Mississippi branch. So we found this card catalog after she died and it um, brought up, a lot of stuff about my mom and my family and my life as a child and really re-appreciating my mother, not just as a mother, but as a human being. And so I fashioned a memoir about it and it got released in May of 2022. So I'm kind of working on that, on getting that out to the world. Wonderful. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hi, I'm Lydia Potoff, an adult services librarian at Anoka County Library, and this is your Library Minute. First up, we have Dumb, 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 My Mother's Book Reviews by Mary Jo Peel. After her mother's death, Peel read the book reviews her mother Dorothy wrote. A voracious reader, Peel's mother commented on everything she read for decades in a pithy and often funny form. This memoir weaves together those reviews and Peel's recollections of her mother in a way that's poignant and often hilarious. Next, we have the Mystery Science Theater 3000 Collection, Volume 3. To get a taste of the show Mary Jo Peel worked on for years, Watch this four DVD set of several Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes and shorts. Next, we have Funny Thing About Minnesota, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of the Twin Cities Comedy Scene by Patrick Strait. To understand the local comedy milieu from which Peel and her Mystery Science Theater 3000 colleagues rose, check out this recent publication of the Minnesota Historical Society Press you'll discover the unlikely beginnings of what would become the dynamic environment that launched the career of Louis Anderson and led to the creation of Dudley Riggs's Brave New Workshop. And it all began when the owner of Mickey Finn's needed to bring customers into a dead bar on the weekend. 
Happy reading. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. Minnesota's 24 online give-a-thon, Give to the Max Day, is coming up on November 18th. Visit givemn.org and give back to the nonprofits and schools you care about most. I loved how it just felt like such a natural conversation between them and they were laughing and just taking time to remember all of these interesting things about her life. The remembering things about our life is where the stories all come from and where the remembering and the legacy comes from in all of these projects that we're talking about too. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even know that you want to share the story or you have the story to tell until somebody asks you a question about it, which is a really sweet piece of connecting with someone. Which is exactly what we're going to do on November 5th at the History Center. Mary Jo and Daryl are both coming in to do a program with us, yet to be titled. Um, But it's going to be about how the story comes to life and how you write that memoir and how you get through the stacks of notes that you have. Or maybe you have nothing. Maybe you have no idea where you're going to start. So maybe it's storyboarding on a wall. Or maybe you're just throwing darts around at this point, quite literally. So it's going to be a workshop. It's going to be a roundtable, small group workshop, and Mary Jo and Daryl are both going to be there. We're going to invite everyone to bring a small item that informs your legacy story. So something that is a memory bringer backerer. Is that a phrase, Sarah? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We're going to go with that. And you can talk to the small group about that item, and the small group's going to decide what other information they would like. And you're going to use this in your your legacy building and in your memoir and we're going to talk about the universality of some stories but yet how unique they are to you as a person where is it going to be held at the history center aha right here in downtown anoka so we can put the links out for you on that it will be ten dollars and uh you know if finances are a problem let us know Uh, we have some abilities to give some scholarships out too that's amazing Uh, In the meantime, while you're waiting for this amazing program, you can listen to Mary Jo's full interview because she and Daryl talked far longer than I could put in uh, this episode. So you can get some inspiration for the roundtable discussion. Oh, and pick up her book. It's called Dumb, Dumb, Dumb. I will definitely have a link for that and other uh, fun links and pictures on Uh, the show notes page. Sounds brilliant. Hope everybody goes and checks it out. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode or would like to share your own story, go to anocacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21 The Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.